Greetings, I'm Austin Egbert, Director of Mind Matters News. You're listening to another BingeCast, where multiple episodes are combined into a single program. This week, we talk with Dr. Michael Egnor about a variety of topics involving the human brain, including various theories of the mind, free will, evidence for mind-body dualism, and research into the brain activity of coma patients. Enjoy. Welcome to Mind Matters News, where artificial and natural intelligence meet head-on. Here's your host, Robert J. Marks. Greetings. The mind-body problem, better titled the mind-brain problem, is about differentiation of the mind and the brain. Is the mind an emergent property of the brain, or is there something else going on there? Our guest is Dr. Michael Ignor. He's a professor of neurosurgery and pediatrics at State University of New York, Stony Brook. He's the director of pediatric neurosurgery. He's an award-winning brain surgeon. He was, in fact, named one of New York's best doctors by the New York Magazine in 2005. Dr. Ignor has lectured extensively throughout the United States and Europe, including at the opening ceremonies and the launching of the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence in Seattle in 2018. He is a senior fellow of Discovery Institute's Bradley Center and a frequent contributor to Mind Matters News. That's at mindmatters.ai. And uh, Michael, your posts, uh, your, your, your writings and posts to Mind Matters News always get a lot of hits, disproportionately high. So thank you for, thank you for joining us here. Uh, thank you, Bob. Emo Phillips, he said one day he was walking around and he recognized that his brain was the most wonderful organ in his body. Then he said he realized who was telling him this. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of amazing, you know. Emo Phillips quip aside, it's kind of amazing we can use our minds to even partially understand our minds. So, Doctor Ignor, before we talk about minds, what constitutes a good theory of the mind and the way the mind relates to the body and the brain? Well, it's a great question uh, and a, a very important question. It actually, was a question that Aristotle asked. Um, and uh, when he, in, in, his, um, in his work, De Anima on the Soul, um, and uh, he asked, you know, what, what, what would a good explanation for the soul consist of? He felt, and I completely agree, that the first now, thing if, is— Now, if I could interrupt you, you mentioned the idea of a soul. Is this kind of the idea of the mind, according to Aristotle? Yes. Um, the classical philosophers um, really thought in terms of the soul more than in terms of what we would call the mind. And what we call the mind is kind of a subset of what the classical philosophers thought of as the soul. They saw the soul as the, that which makes um, a living body alive. So that um, they saw the soul as what we would call the mind, but also the physiological functions, you know, the heartbeat, uh, all, all, all the physiology that goes, that goes along with it. Um, and actually, I think that's, that's a more sensible and comprehensive view of the human being. Uh, so what we think of as the mind is just several powers of the soul. I see. So you were relating to the way that Aristotle thought about it. Yes, yes, yes. He, he didn't separate out. Um, what we would call mental processes so sharply from ordinary physiology, breathing and heartbeat and muscle movement. He felt it was all uh, in kind of an integrated whole. It's actually one of the beauties of the Aristotelian way of looking at things. Uh, it's, there's, there's no artificial separation there. He sees it all as part of a whole. 
I see. So could you be more specific what constitutes a good theory of, of the mind sure. and the way the mind relates to the body? Well, the very first thing that we need is we need a theory that makes sense. And by that, uh, I mean a theory that at least is not internally self-refuting. Uh, a, a good example, I think, of a self-refuting theory of the mind is eliminative materialism, uh, which is a bizarre theory held by many materialists. Uh, Could you repeat that today. phrase, eliminated, sure. ma eliminated materialism? Eliminative uh, materialism. Eliminative, okay. Yes. And it is the viewpoint um, that uh, not only, um, well, it, it is the viewpoint that the only thing that exists is the brain. And that, as, as, as far as the mind goes, and that there is no mind. That is, that what we have come to think of as our mind is just the physical processes going on inside our brain. That is different from another theory of mind called identity theory that was held in the 20th century that has been pretty much discarded. And identity theory was that the mind is the same thing as the brain. Um, and that has been discarded because it's logical nonsense. That is, that um, every attribute of the mind, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, reason and emotion and uh, perception, all of those things, um, are completely different from matter. That is, that uh, one describes matter in terms of extension in space or mass or uh, various qualities like that. One describes perceptions and um, and reason and emotions in completely different ways. There, there, there's no overlap between them. So the, the, the mental states can't be the same thing as physical states because they actually don't share any properties in common. They're clearly related to one another in important ways, but they're not the same thing. Um, eliminative materialists go one step further. They actually say that there are no mental states, that the only thing is the brain, which is kind of an odd thing to say because what eliminative materialists therefore are saying is that their ideas are mindless. I mean, how, how, how can <laughs> yep. you have a proposition that the mind doesn't exist? Because that means propositions don't exist. And that means that you don't, you, you, you don't have a proposition. <laughs> so that's the self-refuting you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. And, and Aristotle made that point. You know, the very first thing, if you're going to explain the soul or the, or the mind, is that what you say has to make sense. Uh, there's a, a neuroscientist named Bennett and a philosopher named Hacker who've written extensively on, on this topic of neurophilosophy and written some very good things. And their motto is that the precondition of truth is sense. That is that you can't pretend to have a scientific truth or a philosophical truth or any kind of truth if the statement you're making about it doesn't even make sense. And um, eliminative materialism is self-refuting. If it's true, then it's false. So you, the first thing is that your theory has to, in some way, make sense. Uh, and, and there are various theories that do kind of make sense uh, to varying, varying degrees. Um, the second criterion is that you really need, the theory needs to um, offer a reasonably good explanation uh, for um, uh, for the mind and for the body, uh, it, 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 it has to fit the evidence. Uh, you can't you can't have a, have a theory that uh, makes sense, but it doesn't fit the evidence very well. Um, and um, 
you very much want it to be consistent with the results of neuroscience, uh, obviously. I mean, neuroscience is a, is a beautiful and, and powerful field. And any theory of the mind and the brain has to correspond to a significant degree with the findings in neuroscience. Um, neuroscience, I think, has been philosophically misguided uh, in substantial ways, uh, but we, we have to take the experimental evidence, the data, quite seriously and try to understand it uh, in a way that makes sense. Certainly a lot has gone on with neuroscience since uh, since Aristotle. So with these three criteria, what, what are some of the theories of mind that are on tap that make sense according to the criteria you've outlined? Sure. Um, well, I, I um, making sense, of course, is to some extent relative, meaning some theories make more sense than other theories. Uh, by far the most common perspective today, I think both in the philosophical community and certainly in the neuroscience community, is materialism. Uh, and um, materialism or what one might call physicalism or naturalism, they're all rather similar perspectives. And basically the perspectives there are that the only thing that exists uh, are material things, things that are that you know, have extension in space and mass and things like that uh, in the natural world that can be described by uh, the basic sciences like physics and chemistry. Um, the materialists believe that there, there is no supernatural world. Uh, and uh, materialists also believe that there are no uh, agents or properties or entities uh, in nature that don't have um, material uh, origins, uh, there, that there are no souls, uh, there, there are no spirits, nothing like that. Uh, and, and that's that. The, so the materialist perspective is certainly the dominant perspective in neuroscience today. I think it's a deeply misguided perspective, um, and it's I believe held by neuroscientists mainly because they haven't thought about it very deeply. Uh, it's kind of the default option. Um, but when you think about it deeply, it, 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 it doesn't provide a particularly satisfactory perspective on the mind and the brain. Wouldn't, wouldn't a materialism ideology require that the mind be an emergent property of the brain? Well, it, it, it might even limit us with, with the idea of emergence. That is that um, materialism would only be completely consistent with, you know, with, the, with an emergent perspective if the emergent thing was material. That is, that if one felt that some kind of immaterial soul emerged from brain activity, then that wouldn't even be a materialist view. Um, okay. And I think the emergence is a very problematic concept. Um, I, I actually don't think it's a particularly useful concept in philosophy of mind. I can also attest in the area of uh, artificial life and such that emergence digitally from digital organisms and digital evolution has really fallen short of doing anything of that, 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 that's truly yeah, meaningful. It, it, so. it, it basically doesn't do any lifting. Uh, it yes. is essentially an in, invocation of magic. Um, and there are two very serious problems with the concept of emergence in philosophy of mind. Uh, the, the usual emergent assertion is that um, the mind in some way is an emergent property of the brain. Um, and uh, the problem with that assertion, number one, is that we do. There are things that are considered to be emergent properties that are kind of accepted. Um, a classic example is uh, the wetness of water. 
Um, and it's emergent in the sense that if one studies water uh, rigorously from the standpoint of physics, there's nothing about it that's particularly wet. That is, it, it's, you, know, you, you can study the quantum mechanical attributes of oxygen and, hi- and hydrogen and all the chemistry and physics of, of water and not come out of that with anything that suggests that it's wet. But when you put real water in front of you and dip your finger in it, it's kind of wet. <laughs> so people say that wetness is an emergent property of water. That's curious. The thing is with the philosophy of mind is that um, if a mind is an emergent property of, of the brain, um, what you're dealing with with philosophy of mind is something that is ontologically completely different. That is that there are no properties of mind that have any overlap with properties of brain. Thought and matter are not similar in any way. Matter has extension in space and mass. Thoughts have no extension in space and no mass. Uh, Thoughts have emotional states. Matter doesn't have emotional states. It's just matter. So it's not clear that you can get an emergent property when there's no connection whatsoever between that property and the thing it supposedly emerges from. The other problem with with emergence, I think, is even more fundamental. And that is that when you think about, for example, the wetness of water as an emergent property of water, what you're really talking about is a psychological state. That is, you're saying that psychologically, you didn't expect water to feel wet, but by golly, it does. So that's emergent. But you can't explain the psychological state itself as emergent. Would the word qualia apply here? Um, yes. Uh, qualia is um, uh, the um, subjective experience of things, the way things feel. Uh, and uh, one might say that it's first-person experience as opposed to third-person experience, which is objective. And um, it has been a notoriously difficult problem uh, that has been uh, addressed in many ways in the 20th century to try to explain how it is that the matter of the brain, which is entirely third-person, meaning it's it's you know it's got mass, it's got you know it's got extension in space, it's things that you can study under a microscope. How is something that's third-person objective capable of giving us first-person subjective experience? Um, And um, David Chalmers, who's a a very well-known philosopher of mind, um, has called that problem the, the hard problem of consciousness. And Chalmers has described two problems that are that we face in explaining consciousness. One is the easy problem of consciousness. And uh, what he means by that really is neuroscience. By the way, just to set the stage, uh, Chalmers, would you classify him as a materialist and coming from this no. from a materialist viewpoint? He is no. not. Okay. No, he's not. Um, he, um, he, 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 he has a quality of panpsychism. Uh, that is, he kind of thinks that consciousness oh, is, a, is a fundamental quality of, of, of everything, which sounds initially like it's kind of crazy, but I actually don't think it's nearly as crazy as it seems. Uh, I'm not a panpsychist. I, I don't think everything is conscious. But there is, in my view, um, no question that all of created reality manifests mental things. That is, that there's clearly a mind in some way manifested in reality. Um, I don't think reality has a mind, 
but I don't think you can separate mind from reality. So I, I can see where panpsychists are coming from. I, I think they're wrong, but they're not completely wrong. Now, you, you're going through some of the different theories of the mind that are on tap, and we've gone through materialism. And I'm sorry, I, I derailed you on your talking about uh, Chalmers theory. But, That's okay. Um, but uh, what, what are some of the other models of the mind other than materialism? Sure. Well, one would be panpsychism, um, uh, which is, uh, um, or some people uh, also would have something called neutral monism. Um, and the, those are views that consciousness is is sort of just a fundamental property of everything. Wouldn't that also be materialist? Uh, not really, because it would describe uh, mental activities as not inherently material. That is, that mental activities are real, and they exist in association with matter, but they aren't the same thing as matter. It's sort of the idea that the real substance that forms the universe is inherently conscious, and we are just particularly um, dramatic examples of it. I remember a post that you wrote for Mind Matters News, which was, electrons are not conscious. Mm-hmm. Which which is which is on this. I believe though right. that a panpsychist can also be an atheist. Usually, I I equate materialism with atheism, but you said that there's broader things than materialism, such as panpsychism, which can also be embraced by an atheistic perspective. Is yeah, sure, correct? sure. I mean, pan, I panpsychism. Okay. Uh, panpsychism doesn't, uh, at least as it's normally um, uh, endorsed, uh, doesn't necessarily have any theistic. Uh, implication, um, you know. I think you can easily be an atheist and be a panpsychist. I, I don't think you can be an atheist and be rational, meaning that when you look with rigor at um, at the question of the existence of God, um, I don't think you can be a rational atheist. But there are okay. tons of ir- there are lots of irrational atheists, and some of them are panpsychists. I see. Okay, so we have materialism, panpsychism. What other theories of the mind are on tap? Uh, well, there are um, a number of uh, dualist theories of the mind, uh, and um, a dualism, just generally uh, considered, is the viewpoint that mental uh, states um, are not the same thing as material states, as brain states. Uh, that there is, uh, when you consider the material as- aspects of, uh, for example, a, a human being, that there is a remainder that is mental, that is not material. Um, but there are a variety of ways of looking at dualism. Um, the um, kind of the classical dualist way of looking at things, at least in, in, in modern philosophy, is Cartesian dualism, um, which was proposed by Descartes uh, uh, back in the 17th century. And he proposed that um, human beings are um, composites of um, matter extended in space, um, and of uh, spirit, which he thought of as a thinking substance. So he thought that there were two separate substances that were joined to form a human being. Uh, And basically, the material body joined to the immaterial spirit. And there certainly are good things to say about the Cartesian understanding of the mind and body, but I think it's fundamentally misguided from a philosophical and logical standpoint, and that it actually has done quite a bit of uh, harm philosophically because 
Um, it, it was described in the 20th century by a philosopher named Gilbert Ryle as the ghost in the machine. Uh, and that is that Descartes understood human beings basically to be biological machines that were inhabited by a ghost, which is the spirit or the, or the mind. And um, materialists uh, have simply said, well, there's no ghost. So we'll just understand human beings as biological machines. I see. And that's a profound error, but Descartes opened the door to that. But uh, the, 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 the perspective that Descartes cast aside uh, was that of hylomorphism, which is uh, an Okay, an slow idea. down. What, what was it called again? Oh, sure. Hylomorphism, uh, H-Y-L-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Some people spell it H-Y-L-E-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. And that's that all of uh, nature consists of a composite of form and matter. Um, morphism means matter, and hyl is the, is, is the Greek word for form. Um, and um, oh, I'm sorry, it's, it's a Greek word for matter. Uh, so hylomorphism means that uh, everything in nature is a composite of form, which is um, Aristotle would call a principle of intelligibility, and matter, which is a principle of individuation. I so see. it's a it's a rather profound metaphysical perspective, um, and in that perspective, the soul or the mind is the form of the body, but it's it's a different perspective than Descartes perspective. And it doesn't see mind and body as being separate substances. It sees a human being as being a unitary thing with different principles involved, but not different substances. One of the criteria that you mentioned for um, establishing a good model of the mind-brain problem is consistency uh, with results of neuroscience. How do these three different theory stack up, materialism, panpsychism, and dualism? Sure. Um, well, uh, panpsychism, I, I, I think, uh, while I do think there can be some, um, you know, it, I, I could see how um, a, a person might make that inference. Some very intelligent people like Dr. Chalmers have made that inference. Um, I don't think panpsychism is a particularly scientific viewpoint. Um Realistically speaking, there's no particular reason to think that, uh, that electrons or grains of sand um, have minds. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, how the heck would you ever test something like that? Right, right. Well, you you could ask an electron, and um, and people have tried, and and the electrons don't answer. So, I, so uh, yeah, I mean, it, right. It's it's a difficult thing to test. Um, Materialists have, of course, made the claim that neuroscience completely supports materialism. I had an internet debate with uh, Dr. Stephen Novello, who is a neurologist at Yale a number of years ago, uh, where and he's a materialist. And Dr. Novello said that every single bit of evidence in the history of neuroscience supports materialism, which I think is 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 not is not the case. Um, but so. Uh, materialists would claim that neuroscience supports materialism. Um, the problem with that is that um, neuroscientists generally work from a materialist perspective, and um, they ask questions uh, of the mind and the brain um, from a materialist perspective. And goodness gracious, it's no surprise that if that's the way you ask the questions, then materialism always seems like it's the answer. 
when I was in college, um, uh, I had a professor of uh, biology, Dr. Pollock, uh, who I really loved. He was a great, a great professor, a great philosopher, as well as a great scientist. And his his adage was that in science, um, the question you ask is more important than the answer you obtain. Um, that is that the way you um, the way you approach the problem and the qu- kind of question you ask determines how meaningful your answer is. And if you get the question wrong up front, then your answer won't be meaningful no matter what kind of work you do. So oh, you've got to ask the right sure. questions. So if you're a materialist and all your questions are predicated on uh, on the materialism, you're never going to get it right. <laughs> so um, I think dualism is a much, much better explanation for many aspects of neuroscience. That was my next question. Do you, speaking as a an experienced neurosurgeon who has played around with the brains of many, many people, what do you believe? Do you believe that the mind is distinct from the brain as a dualist does? Um, I think, first of all, that if one is going to understand the mind and the brain, you need to start with a solid metaphysical uh, foundation. Uh, and I think uh, hylomorphism is a solid metaphysical foundation. Um, I don't think Cartesian dualism is a good metaphysical foundation, and I certainly don't think materialism is a good metaphysical foundation. Um, I think the best explanation for the um, relationship of the mind to the brain is Aristotelian hylomorphism, uh, which is the viewpoint that the soul um, is the form of the body, and certain powers of the soul, particularly the intellect and will, are not generated by matter, but are immaterial things, what Thomas Aquinas would call the spirit. Uh, But other properties of the mind, like perception and memory and imagination, are physical. Uh, They they are directly related to brain matter, and they're generated by brain matter. Um, I think that's the best explanation uh, philosophically for what we find in neuroscience. Very good. Most of the debates about the mind-brain problem have been argued over the years by philosophers and theologians, I believe. Uh, however, we do have the emerging field of neuroscience. Do you have any thoughts what neuroscience is going to tell us about the mind-brain problem in the near future, or in the far future even? Um, well, as uh, as Dr. Pollock said, um, it all depends on the questions we ask. Um, the um, my favorite quote uh, about neuroscience was by a philosopher named Roger Scruton, who described neuroscience as a vast collection of answers with no memory of the questions. Uh, <laughs> you have to unpack that. What what does that yeah. mean? Everybody has well, the answers, but it's not asking the questions. Yes. And I should point out that Scruton is not. I mean, I believe he's an atheist, so he's not a, a you know, sort of your typical dualist. And I don't even know if he'd consider himself a dualist. But what he points out is that neuroscience is done with such a um, an unreflective and rather primitive um, materialist predicate that people don't even really think about what their experiments mean. That they, they just spew out the data. It spew out the data, attach a materialistic explanation to it, and just go on to your next experiment uh, without thinking deeply about what are the real questions in these experiments? What are you really trying to find out? Uh, so, and he's quite right that neuroscience has a vast collection of answers, meaning 
if you if you took all the data that has been generated by neuroscientists over the past century, um, you know, you you could fill li- libraries brimming over. I mean, the, the amount of research and a lot of it is really good research, really high quality stuff. It, it's amazing the philosophical insight and reflection that is associated with this work is uh, basically at the level of a not terribly bright elementary school child. <laughs> Meaning that it's, it's, okay. it's, 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 it's amazing how bad the philosophy is. Um, I once asked a neuroscientist you know, here where I work, we were having a discussion one time about the, about the mind and the brain, and I asked him, how, how is it that neurons in the cortex uh, are associated with mental states. And he just said, they just generate them. That's all. Oh, boy. And I think, well, you know, that's, that's, that you didn't really say anything. <laughs> there wasn't any, exp- that, that's not a level of explanation. And he didn't think there was a problem with that. He just said, yeah, they generate them. So what? Boy, you talk about blind faith. Well, yes. And it's like, as Scruton said, no, no memory of the questions, doesn't even understand the question. And mm-hmm. that, that's what struck me most about materialist in neuroscience is that they don't even know what they don't know. They don't even realize how little they can really explain. Some scientists subscribe to an ideology dubbed the non-overlapping magisteria, or called NOMA. It's uh, basically the idea that your science is separated from anything religious and vice versa. I reject the premise and uh, maintain there is a relationship of NOMA to the old Jim Crow South, where races were separate but equal. You have the same thing in NOMA. You have faith and science, separate but equal. The premise of separate but equal always seems to diminish one side in favor of the other. So putting NOMA aside, let's start by asking uh, Dr. Ignor, can neuroscience shed any light on faith? Dr. Ignor, is there a soul? What does neuroscience say? Well, I, I think there certainly is a soul. Uh, and I too reject uh, noma. I, I think it's it's a nonsensical idea. Uh, the reality is that truth is unitary, uh, and that claiming that there basically are two separate truths that have no overlap uh, is just nonsense. Uh, and I only have faith in things that I think are true. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think neuroscience uh, strongly supports the inference that we have a soul. Is there a difference between the soul and, a sp- and the spirit? Do we have a spirit? What does neuroscience say there? Or are they equivalent in some sense? I'm not, I'm not informed enough to have a nuance between the two. That's okay. The, the, um, uh, of course, uh, all of these, uh, the, the reality of a soul or a spirit um, d- depends to some extent on, on how you define them. Uh, and the classical Thomistic way uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas, of um, understanding soul and spirit, uh, I, I think is, is the way that makes the most sense. And uh, soul by St. Thomas uh, was understood in the, much the same way that Aristotle un- understood the soul, as being um, the principle of life in a living thing. That is, it's kind of everything that makes you alive rather than dead, rather than a dead body. So if you look at a living body and compare it to a dead body, the difference is the soul. And it's a principle of organization, a principle of function. Um, And the spirit 
in the the Thomistic viewpoint um, is um, particularly the aspects of the soul that are not material, uh, and that would be particularly the intellect and the will. Um, so a, a Thomist, at least loosely speaking, would say that the soul is um, is the principle of life in a body, and the spirit um, is um, refers more specifically to the immaterial aspects of the soul, which are the the ability to reason and the ability to make decisions based on reason. Wonderful. What did the research of one of your fellow neurosurgeons in history, Wilder Penfield, tell us about the soul and the spirit? Well, Wilder Penfield um, was one of actually many neuroscientists who was a dualist. Um, and uh, in fact, many of the, of the greatest neuroscientists in history have been dualists. Uh, Could so, you uh, just just briefly in a sentence explain what a dualist is again? Sure. A dualist is someone who believes that some aspect of the mind is not material. Uh, that, it, that is, that there is something above and beyond just brain matter that constitutes uh, the human mind. Uh, and um, Sherrington, who was really the, the original pioneer in neuroscience, worked back around the beginning of the 20th century, was a dualist, um, as was uh, Dr. Penfield, who I'll talk about momentarily. And uh, there's a guy named Eccles in the 1960s, who was a Nobel laureate, who was a passionate dualist. Uh, other neuroscientists like uh, Roger Sperry and Benjamin Leibitt, uh all of whom are, are, are Sperry was a Nobel laureate also. Uh, these are all neuroscientists of, of the top rank who were all dualists. And it's interesting that they they maintained this position because of their neurosurgery experience. Well, actually, uh, yes. And uh, Wilder Penfield uh, was a neurosurgeon at the University of Montreal in Canada um, who was really the pioneer in surgery for epilepsy. Uh, and he worked uh, back in the mid-20th century for several decades. And he did uh, surgery on, on uh, probably upwards of, of, a, of a thousand patients who had um, intractable epilepsy. They would have seizures that couldn't be controlled. And uh, he did uh, brain surgery to remove the area of the brain that was causing the seizure and to cure their seizures. And he did a lot of that surgery um, on patients who were awake during the surgery because the brain itself feels no pain. And if you can um, anesthetize using local anesthesia like lidocaine, uh, the scalp and, uh, and the skull, um, you can do the surgery without the person feeling any pain. And, th and they're wide awake as you're working on their brain. So he had an opportunity to study uh, the human brain and conscious let me, people. Let me ask you, let me interrupt you. What's the necessity of having an open brain operation? I think if I had the option of an open brain operation or being knocked out, I'd prefer to be knocked out. But clearly, yeah, there's, most, there's a reason that you have this open brain uh, surgery. Yeah, mo most folks, if it, if, it, if, it, if it didn't matter one way or the, or the other, would rather sleep through it. But um, uh, the reason for being awake is that it, allowed, it allows, and we still do this surgery, it allows uh, the neurosurgeon to map the surface of the brain uh, to um, make sure that the surgery to treat the epilepsy doesn't cause brain damage that would cause uh, a deficit like a stroke. So it allows us to find out exactly what different regions of the brain are doing so that we can be careful and preserve the regions that are important. So does the surgeon touch a part of the brain and ask the patient 
does that make you tingle somewhere? Or? Yes, basically. Uh, we uh, use electrodes that uh, produce a, a small electrical current that um, either stimulates or interferes with the functioning of a particular spot on the brain. And you can generate a map of the brain just the same way as you can map a city. Uh, wow. And um, Penfield was the first person to 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 do this on a systematic basis. Uh, and he started his career as a materialist. He thought the whole mind came from the brain and he was just going to study it. And at the end of his career, uh, 30 years later, he was a passionate dualist. He said that there is a part of the mind that is not from the brain. Uh, and um, he, he had several lines of reasoning that convinced him of that. Uh, one line of reasoning was that in mapping people's brains, and again, he, he mapped upwards of a thousand people this way. In mapping people's brains, he would do hundreds of individual stimulations of the surface of the brain to see what happened. And people would have all kinds of things happen. They, they, would, they would have their arm move, or they'd feel a tingling, or they'd see a flash of light, or sometimes they'd have a memory, or they'd have an impediment, like they couldn't speak for a minute or two after a certain spot was touched. But Penfield noted that in probably hundreds of thousands of different individual stimulations, he never once stimulated the, the power of reason. He never stimulated the intellect. Huh. He never stimulated a person to do calculus or to think of an abstract concept like justice or mercy. All the stimulations were concrete things. Move your arm or feel a tingling or, or even a concrete memory, like you remember your grandmother's face or something. But there was never any abstract thought stimulated. And Penfield said, hey, if the brain is the source of abstract thought, and then once, once in a while, when I'm putting an electrical current on some part of the cortex, I ought to get an abstract thought. And he never, ever did. So he said, well, the obvious explanation for that is that abstract thought doesn't come from the brain. I see. The other line of reasoning that he had, which is kind of related to this, is that since he was a pioneer in the treatment of um, epilepsy, not only did he study the surgical manifestations of epilepsy, but he also studied the, just the, the presentation of seizures that people would have in their everyday life. So he studied hundreds of thousands of seizures that people had, and he never found any seizure that had intellectual content. N seizures never involved abstract reasoning. When people have seizures, Sometimes they have a generalized seizure where they just fall on the ground and go unconscious. Or sometimes they'll have what's called a focal seizure where they'll, they'll have a twitching of a finger or twitching of a limb, or they'll have a tingling feeling, or you know, the same kind of things that he got when he stimulated the surface of the brain. But nobody ever had a calculus seizure. Nobody ever had a seizure <laughs> where they couldn't stop doing arithmetic or where they couldn't <laughs> stop doing logic. And he said, why is that? If arithmetic and logic and calculus and all that abstract thought come from the brain, yeah, every once in a while you ought to get a seizure that makes it happen. Never happens. So he asked rhetorically, said, why are there no intellectual seizures? And his answer was, because the intellect doesn't come from the brain. Um, his third line of reasoning was the following. He would ask people um, to move their arm during the surgery. So he'd be playing around with their brain. And he'd say, you know, whenever you want to, move, move, move your right arm. So the person would move their arm. And once in a while, he'd stimulate the part of the brain that made the arm move. And they'd move their arm also when he did that. And then he would ask them, he said, I want you to tell me, when I'm 
making your arm move. And when you're moving your arm without me making you do it, tell me if you can tell the difference. And they could always tell the difference. The patients always knew that when he stimulated their arm, it was him doing it, not them. And when they stimulated their arm, they were doing it, not him. So Penfield said that he couldn't stimulate the will. He could never trick the patient into thinking that it was them doing it. He said the patients always retained a correct sense of agency. They always knew if they did it or if he did it. So he said the will was not something he could stimulate, meaning it was not material. So he had three lines of evidence, his inability to stimulate intellectual thought, the inability of seizures to cause intellectual thought, and his inability to stimulate the will. He said means that the intellect and the will, and I'm, I'm using these terms, the terms he used were slightly different. He called the intellect and the will the mind was the term he used, but that's what he meant. The intellect and the will, in his view, were not from the brain, which is actually precisely what Aristotle said. Wow. So Penfield ruled out intellectual thought originating from the brain. Did he extend this, do you know, to try to identify the source of this intellectual activity? Well, um, I, I, and I, I would speak for him. He, I don't, he wasn't an Aristotelian in, in, in his philosophical perspective. He didn't really get into the deeply into the philosophical theories. But, um, but his view was that it, that it was an immaterial power that the will and the mind um, uh, were not material, and I, I, I believe he would have just considered them spiritual. So he, it sounds like he was at least um, graduated to the area of a deist. Would you say that? Yeah. I'm, I don't actually know his religious beliefs. Um, it, 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 it would surprise me if he were an atheist. I think it, frankly, um, uh, after a scientific career like this, uh, I think atheism would be a pretty hard thing to hold to. Uh, if, if, if you think really deeply about these issues, atheism is not where you tend to come out. Um, but um, but I don't actually know his religious beliefs. But he clearly um, believed uh, that aspects of the human mind uh, were spiritual rather than physical. That's amazing. Do you find this true across most neurosurgeons or not? Anecdotally, I think most neurosurgeons are... Um, are theists for sure. I mean, I, most of the neurosurgeons I know believe in God, but of course that's true of, of most people. And I think that the reality is most neurosurgeons probably don't think terribly deeply about the metaphysical questions that they encounter. But I think it is uh, widely recognized among neurosurgeons that there, there are aspects of the relationship between the mind and the brain that are not simple physical relationships. I mean, we, we, we deal with that every day. In fact, frankly, from my perspective, that's one of the things that led me to be a dualist. I, I was a materialist years ago, and I was an atheist. In my view, you can't thoughtfully do this work and remain a materialist. Uh, because we, I see things all, 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 all the time that don't make any sense from a materialist perspective. My father, when I was uh, when I was a lad, offered the following anecdote about free will versus predestination, and this is the way that I understood it for a long while. If you dig a post hole, are you creating a post hole of your own free will, or was the post hole already there and you're taking out the dirt? If you're creating the hole, you're exercising free will. If already there, the hole was predestined. 
So for many years, I actually thought that the idea, at least uh, between free will and predestination, was something that couldn't be determined experimentally. But my mind has been changed, and we're going to be talking about that uh, today with Dr. Ignor. Uh, neuroscience sheds clarity on the problem. Uh, Dr. Ignor, you have educated me on the research of Ben Libet and how that informed us about humans' ability uh, to have free will. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, ben Libet uh, was a uh, neuroscientist um, uh, in California, I think at the University of San Francisco, uh, for many years in the mid 20th century. Uh, and um, he didn't win the Nobel Prize, but I think he should have. Uh, he certainly is, is one of the most consequential neuros, neuroscientists of the 20th century. And Leibniz's um, fascination was with the relationship between thoughts and time. That is, he wanted to know what was happening inside the brain, timed as precisely as possible with activity of the brain. So at the moment you think something, what is the brain doing? Uh, and in fact, his, he wrote a book for the, for the lay press called Mind Time was the, was the name of the book. Mind Time. Do you know if that's still in press at all? Or? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. It's, 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 it's actually a very nice book and a very nice uh, synopsis of his research. Um, and it's fairly technical. I mean, he goes into quite a bit of detail, but it's, but, but it's quite readable. Uh, and Leibniz, um, uh, his most famous experiments, and he did many different kinds of experiments looking at brain waves and thoughts. Um, his most famous experiment was on the question of free will. He asked a, a whole bunch of normal volunteers to uh, sit at a desk, and he had a button in front of them that they could push, and he had a clock in front of them that they could look at the clock, and uh, to within uh, a few milliseconds, they could time like a thought that came into their head. The clock had a sweep second hand. It was actually, I think it was on an oscilloscope. And um, it, it had a sweep hand. And they could say that, you know, I had this thought at exactly this time, again, within a few milliseconds. And he also attached electrodes to their scalp so he could record the electrical activity in their brain. And he asked them, he said, just sit there at the desk and Whenever you decide to push the button at the desk, look at the moment you decide to push the button on the clock and then push the button. And he would record their brain waves synchronized in time with the clock and with the button pushing. So we could kind of tell what's going on in the brain uh, corresponding to their thought and to the pushing of the button. And what he found was that about half a second before they decided to push the button, there was a spike in the brainwave activity corresponding to that thought. And um, again, he found that it happened before the thought, before the decision. So he initially thought that that argued against free will. It almost seemed like the brain was generating the thought and the person didn't really have any control over it. It was just the physiology of the brain that made the thought happen. So he said, well, it looks like that free will might not be real. It might just be driven by brain chemistry. But then, being a really good scientist, he decided to look at it in a little more depth. So he asked the people, when you make a decision to push the button, immediately veto the decision. So sit there at the desk, say, hey, I'm going to push this button, and then say, no, you know, maybe I won't push the button, and then don't push it. So he looked at the vetoes. 
And what he found was that when you made a decision to push the button, you still had the brainwave that preceded the decision by half a second. But when you decided to veto pushing the button, there was no new brainwave at all. It was silent in terms of brainwaves. Interesting. But you did make the decision to veto. So he said that it wasn't so much that you have free will, but you have free won't. That is, you have the ability to decide whether or not you're going to comply with what your brain is urging you to do. And that compliance is not material. It's not a brainwave. It's immaterial. And he said, that's the soul. That's free will. So he thought that he really had demonstrated scientifically that we have an immaterial power to override our material, you might say, temptations. And he said that this actually corresponds rather remarkably to the traditional religious understanding of temptation and original sin. He said that we have a constant bombardment from our material brain of impulses that are sort of encouraging us to do things. And he said that we have the free will to override that, and the free will is not from the brain. It's a spiritual thing. Uh, And it's remarkable research. It's very good research. I think it's pretty convincing uh, evidence that free will is real. This is fascinating. The first time I heard this from you, I thought, boy, does that make sense. Because the original sin aside, people get addicted to things. I used to be addicted to cigarettes. And I know I had an impulse in my brain that wanted to make me reach for a cigarette. And in order to quit cigarettes, I had to veto it. I had to exercise what you call free won't. I think anybody that overcomes an addiction, to be it to alcohol, to porn, to tobacco, whatever, has to exercise this free won't. So it certainly makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, everyday application. And I think, let's see, when when we were together last, I, I pointed to a, a verse in 2 Corinthians where we're told to take every thought captive. I thought, what a great description of this idea of free won't, that we have these impulses that come to us, that we're to take action from them and exercise our free won't and, um, and, and go against what those thoughts are telling us to do. I think there is a neuroplasticity effect from this free won't, is there? Does the, does the brain rewire yes. itself in a sense? Could you elaborate on that? Because I think that's fascinating, the brain rewiring itself. Sure, sure. And, 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 and I mean, there's, there's been a, a fair amount of work done on that. Um, Jeffrey Schwartz, who's a, a psychiatrist from California, has written and spoken about that quite a bit. And there does seem to be the capacity um, uh, by exercising the immaterial will to ultimately change uh, brain activity. Uh, and one could uh, envision, and I think Dr. Schwartz has spoken uh, of this with quite a bit of insight, one could envision a situation in which the preconscious impulses from the brain over time are altered by the immaterial will so that um, you're not entirely a victim of your, of your brain. You can override it and you can change it. The nice thing is that this is uh, the traditional uh, sort of religious understanding of um, human motivation, and there's a lot of scientific evidence that supports it. I know as somebody involved in artificial intelligence is something called Hibbs Law, which is summarized that neurons that fire together are wired together. And so if you, if you think a thought a lot, 
than about A and B, then the neurons between A and B build up a stronger and stronger connection. That seems to be what happens with, uh, with addiction. But Hebb's Law, I think discovered in the mid-20th century or something, is, is something that people in artificial intelligence use, and I know is a, is a fundamental aspect of uh, neuroscience, but that seems to supply a theory, at least, to what happens to this rewiring of the brain during the neuroplasticity phase, and is uh, really, really fascinating. You mentioned that sometimes Leibniz's experiment of free won't is actually misrepresented by materialists. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, the misrepresentation is is very common, and um, it's almost routine to 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 read or to hear Leibniz's work being described as scientific evidence uh, for the absence of free will, which is bizarre uh, because Leibniz himself uh, explicitly endorse the reality of free will, uh, emphatically endorse the reality of free will. And uh, Leibniz pointed out that his research um, unequivocally supports the reality of libertarian free will. But the experiment very often, or his experiments very often, are uh, described both in the scientific literature and in the popular press uh, as supportive of materialism, which is something that they don't support and something that Leibniz uh, himself uh, made very clear, uh, that that was not his conclusion. It seems that in order to do that, they would have to exclude the part of the free won't in the experiment. Yes, and um, and undoubtedly uh, in some situations would be the result of, uh, of ignorance on the part of the person making the claim. The person just may not have may not know much about Leibniz's work or uh, may have no um, insight into the original research and have just heard about it and heard about it wrongly. Uh, and other times I have to say that maybe the misrepresentation is deliberate uh, because it doesn't support a materialist perspective. So you think the ideology is actually trumping objectivity there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it goes on a lot. Has Leibniz's experiment been reproduced and confirmed by different researchers? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the, certainly the, the existence of the um, brainwave that occurs before a decision is made um, is, 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 has, has been shown many times. And in fact, Leibniz wasn't the first one to show that. Uh, he, it was called the readiness potential, and it was shown a couple decades earlier by some some German researchers. Uh, Leibniz was the first person to look at it in the kind of detail that he looked at it in, but it was known that there was a potential in the brain that happened before decisions were made uh, by about half a second. Um, recently, functional MRI imaging has been used, uh, which has shown perhaps even uh, even a, a longer interval between the brain activity and the decision, even a matter of several seconds before the the uh, decision is made. One can see activity in the brain. I don't believe anyone, though, has looked at the uh, uh, at the veto part of it. That is, that Leibniz's free free won't aspect. I don't believe has been looked at again, because by and large, it's been denied or ignored. That's interesting because, according to Leibniz, there was no brain activity during the free won't portion of the decision. Is that right? Precisely. I mean, Leibniz interpreted the um, results of, of his experiment as strongly endorsing the reality of free will. 
And his experiments have largely been used to deny the reality of free will. It's a radical misrepresentation of what Leibniz actually actually found. My goodness, that would be so interesting because I think that no brain activity detected during the free will would really be strong evidence about the immateriality of the of the mind. That would be really nice. Right, and 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 one can say if one is really doing objective science. One can say, well, perhaps there was brain activity associated with the free won't, except that the way Leibniz was recording it didn't find it. And, and that's possible. Although he found the, the brain activity associated with the original thought, one would imagine that the veto would also show up. But none of those issues have been really looked at again carefully, which doesn't speak well for the, uh, honestly, for the integrity of uh, neuroscience, because uh, they should have been looked at again. You think that that would be such a big deal, something that people would be really interested in, but maybe they're not interested in going down a path which leads them far from their ideology. So that's probably the problem. Here's a question I was asked in college, which I thought was kind of interesting. It's a philosophical question. If you lose all four of your limbs, are you still you? Most would say yes. Uh, there, in fact, was a cheesy 1962 sci-fi movie called The Brain That Wouldn't Die. In it, a woman's head was kept alive without a body. The head, though, could still see, think, and talk. If this happened to you, would you still be you? I think most would say yes. If only your living and functioning brain were able to survive, maybe connected to sensors and a, some robot arms, would you still be you? Most would say yes, but what if your brain were cut into pieces? Would you still be you? Believe it or not, we have an answer, and Dr. Ignor is going to answer it. Dr. Ignor, tell us about the research of Roger Speary. Is it Speary or Sperry? Uh, Sperry. 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 Okay, and uh, his research as a neurosurgeon and what it tells us about what makes you you in terms of the brain. Sure. Uh, Roger Sperry was a, actually he was a, he was a neuroscientist. Um, uh, worked uh, largely in California uh, during the mid twentieth century, uh, and um, he won the Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology for for his research. And he was very interested in the um, neurological consequences of um, an operation called corpus callosotomy. And a corpus callosotomy is an operation uh, in which the neurosurgeon basically splits the brain in two. In that surgery, which I've performed and, and my colleagues perform, the uh, corpus callosum, which is a, a, a large bundle of nerve fibers that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, is cut so that the two hemispheres of, of the brain are functionally dis disconnected. There's no longer a, a material connection between them. Let me ask you a question. I, use, I, I watched a movie called One, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and there they did a frontal lobotomy. In fact, there was a country music song that came out at the time, terrible country music song, said, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than have a frontal lobotomy. But uh, but Nick Nicholson's character, I think, had a frontal lobotomy. Now, this corpus uh, callosotomy that you're talking about is totally different than a uh, frontal lobotomy. Is that true? Yes, yes. Um, frontal lobotomy was uh, an operation uh, or several different operations uh, that were part of what was called psychosurgery, which is surgery uh, to sort of change your um, emotional or cognitive state. 
um, and um, fell into disrepute largely for for good reasons. It was used for the most part rather inappropriately. Um, uh, corpus callosotomy is seizure surgery, and it's surgery uh, that is designed to um, help treat people who have intractable seizures. Uh, so it's really a different kind of surgery, and uh, it, it doesn't share anything really in common with uh, lobotomies. And the reasoning behind the surgery is that there are uh, some people who have uh, small seizures in one hemisphere of the brain, uh, who have those seizures travel across the corpus callosum into the other hemisphere. And when the seizure does that, it becomes a major seizure instead of a small seizure. And oh. that can be very disabling. And there are people who have 20 or 30 of those major seizures a day, and medication doesn't always work. So um, the point of the corpus callosotomy is to prevent the major seizures from happening. Uh, and it, it's reasonably effective. Um, and there are many ways of doing it. Sometimes the entire corpus callosum isn't cut, sometimes only part of it. Uh, but sometimes the entire corpus callosum is cut. And Sperry um, felt that these patients were very interesting from the standpoint of neuroscience. Because he now, asked when the you, question... When you say they were cut, the, the left and right hemisphere were totally separated from each other? For the most part, yes. Uh, there are small regions uh, in the lower part of the brain uh, called the anterior commissure and the posterior commissure, where there still was some potential for connection, but 99% um, of, um, of the connections between the two hemispheres were cut by cutting the corpus callosum. 99%. Okay. Wow. So, um, so Sperry asked a question. He says, so what happens to these people? You know, it was clear that by cutting the corpus callosum, their seizures uh, were made better. But, um, you know, were they still one person? You know, what did cutting the brain basically in half do to a person? So he studied these patients in great detail. Um, I've had patients with this as well. And, um, what he found is what I found and what all neurosurgeons who have dealt with these patients have found is that they're basically okay. That is, you cut the brain basically in half and except for the fact that their seizures usually get better, they're no different. They're perfectly all right. Isn't that incredible? Right. If, if, if you were to meet these people, uh, you know, if they sat down in front of you and you had a conversation with them, you couldn't tell the difference. They're perfectly normal people. Uh, and they can't tell the difference. They don't feel any different. What Sperry did, though, was that he studied them very, very carefully. And he um, found that there were subtle differences that, for example, um, it's well known that if you look straight ahead, Everything to the left of the midline of where you're looking is seen via the right hemisphere of your brain, and everything to the right of where you're looking is seen via the left hemisphere of your brain. Uh, so the visual fields kind of cross in the brain. And Sperry showed that um, the left hemisphere um, is mainly the hemisphere that mediates speech, and the right hemisphere tends to mediate um, sort of geometrical and spatial understanding. And that if the corpus callosum is cut, the two hemispheres have perceptual abnormalities. That is that if you um, show the right hemisphere an apple, then the right hemisphere can mediate knowledge that it's an apple, but it's not capable of mediating speech and saying it's an apple. Only the left hemisphere can do that. So he was able to understand the functioning of the hemispheres in a little more detail. But 
all of the functional abnormalities that he found, number one, they were undetectable in everyday life. In fact, that's why he won the Nobel Prize. I mean, you don't win the Nobel Prize for, for finding obvious things. So in, in everyday life, these people were perfectly normal. On very careful, subtle testing, you could find these perceptual abnormalities. But the other thing that he found was that all of these abnormalities were perceptual. None of them were intellectual. That is, there, were, there was no abstract thought. It, it wasn't like you disconnected uh, addition from subtraction or justice from mercy or integral calculus from differential calculus. There were no intellectual changes. These were all just perceptual. And what I believe this research shows, and what I believe is the most interesting thing about Sperry's research, was not what's usually cited. Most people say that what's interesting about Sperry was the abnormalities that he showed. What I think is most interesting is the lack of abnormality that he found. That is, that these were basically normal people with brains cut in half. And that is what ought to make us say, wow. And so you're, you're talking about abnormalities, and there were no abnormalities in terms of abstract reasoning and such. Correct. Correct. It would be the same thing as if you were sitting at your computer, and one of your mischievous kids took a chainsaw and cut your computer in half, and you're <laughs> typing away, and nothing changes. It works just fine. You'd think, hey, there's something about this computer that I didn't understand before <laughs> because it's still working. And um, so the surgeons cut these people's brains in half. Nobel laureate neuroscientists studied these patients and found very little that was wrong. And specifically, they found that the only differences were perceptual things, not intellectual things. So in my view, what Sperry showed was that the intellectual aspect of the human mind is what philosophers call metaphysically simple. And by that, I mean that it can't be split like matter can be. Any material thing, if you think about it, can be split. That is, your cell phone or a piece of paper or a brain. You can cut it. You can cut it in half. That, in fact, if you think about it, what defines a material thing is that it, it has extension in space. So it's got parts to it. Cut it down the middle, you get a right part and a left part. Does the mind have parts? And while one might make a case that the perceptual powers can be sort of divided into parts, the intellectual powers cannot be. You can't cut the intellect in half. If you did, you'd have two people. And you don't get two people. So what the split brain research showed, I think, is that intellect and will, which follows on intellect, are what's called metaphysically simple. That is, they're not composed of parts. And that is typical of a spiritual thing. Wow. Spiritual things aren't splittable. You can't split a spirit. It doesn't make any sense to talk about splitting spirits. So I think that Sperry's research strongly confirms the viewpoint that the intellect and will are immaterial powers of the mind. I'm sitting here thinking about ways that the two hemispheres can still communicate and things that come up. I don't know if these have been considered, but one would be a quantum connection where you have entangled states on both sides that some way connect to each other, maybe some electromagnetic connection, or the idea that the brain might act like a hologram, that if you cut away, it's, it's like looking through a window. And if you take a window and you take away half the window, you can still look through the window and, and see what's on the other side. Do you know, 
any of anybody that has uh, tried to explain away the split brain surgery using an argument of this sort? Well, I'm not aware of anybody who has brought up the point that the split brain surgery strongly supports the viewpoint that the intellect is uh, metaphysically simple and is an immaterial power of the mind, even though the research obviously supports that view. The notion that there must be some other way for the hemispheres to connect, um, be it quantum or, or electromagnetism or something, I think may be sort of a category error, meaning that I, I think the most logically rigorous way to look at it is that the, the intellect isn't a material power of the mind, so that talking about connection of the hemispheres related to the intellect doesn't really make any sense, meaning that if something is immaterial, then it doesn't have material connections by definition. I see. So, um, so it, it just—it's not a relevant point. Meaning that you know, you could chop the brain into a thousand pieces, and it wouldn't have an effect on immaterial powers of the mind because immaterial powers of the mind aren't from the brain. Yeah, that—that that is a point. I, in fact, when I was giving the introduction, I thought, you know, is if you cut your brain in two, would you still be you? Well, that's not what defines you. Your brain is not what defines you. It's your, right. it's your mind. It's your soul. It's your spirit. So. And then you can raise the question as to if the intellect is an immaterial power of the mind and the brain itself mediates material powers, which it certainly seems to. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of material aspects to brain function. I mean, you know, they're, they're, people are paralyzed if you get a stroke and things like that. How do these things work together? And that, that's, a, that's a tough question. It, it, it's a question that has bedeviled Cartesian dualists who believe in, in, in that the brain and mind are, are separate substances, it's a little easier for um, uh, Aristotelian philosophers to explain because they believe that the, uh, that the soul or the mind is the form of the body and um, that the mind or the soul is related to the body in the same way that the form of a chair is related to the chair itself. So it, it's something just intrinsic to a physical body and it doesn't require any particular special explanation. Is there any way that a materialist could relate to the observations you've made about the split brain operation? They could ignore it, which is what they've done. <laughs> uh, and, um, okay. Because, I mean, let's face it, if you chop the brain in half and uh, from the standpoint of the intellect, nothing whatsoever happens, that is a, an extraordinary result. It's like chopping the heart in half and finding that it has no effect on the heart. You know, it's not what you would anticipate, and um, and the fact that that hasn't been talked about, to my knowledge, at all, is an indication that the approach materialists have taken to Sperry's results is to ignore the really important parts of his results. My goodness. If you're in a coma, can you still think? Neuroscience gives us an answer. What does neuroscience say? I have down here in my notes, Adrian Owen. Uh, what did he do? Sure. And, and what did he tell us about comas and people thinking in comas? Sure. Well, first of all, as a predicate, people usually take coma to mean that uh, a person has no uh, meaningful interaction with their environment. And there's a condition called persistent vegetative state that is thought to be the deepest level of coma. And it's not brain death, because brain death means actual death, but it's the closest thing there is to brain death. That is, it's a state in which it's been assumed that a person has absolutely no 
subjective experience, meaning there's no first-person experience. You don't dream, you don't feel anything, you don't think anything, you're just not really there. And But I assume there's still brain activity going on, right? Yes, yes, yes. People in persistent vegetative state can breathe, uh, they can control their heart rate, things like that. But basically, they've been thought of as a vegetable, that is, as, as a human body without a mind. Uh, and that's been the assumption for persistent vegetative state. Now, the reality is that families and nurses and doctors who take care of these patients very often have said that they really have the sense in caring for these patients, that they very often are aware of things. But it was hard to quantify. It was hard to put your finger on. Uh, and um, examples are that um, you can be in the uh, in the in the room of a person who is either in persistent vegetative state or in other kinds of deep coma, and you can say something verbally in, in conversation that makes the person's heart rate go up or down. Uh, they, ah. they seem to have an emotional response to what you're saying. But that's always been sort of anecdotal. So uh, the question that one can ask is, is there any evidence that a person in the deepest level of coma has any awareness of what's going on around them. And that question was addressed uh, rigorously first by a um, neuroscientist named Adrian Owen uh, at Cambridge in England uh, back uh, about 15 years ago. And Owen took a woman uh, who was in persistent vegetative state. She'd been in a car accident and had severe brain damage. And she had been in this state for several years. And um, he put her in an MRI machine and did what's called a functional MRI test. And a functional MRI test is a test that looks at changes in blood flow in the brain that we believe correspond to activation of parts of the brain. So you can kind of tell what's going on inside the brain during the time they're in the machine. So we put her in the machine, and he put headphones on her, and he asked her to think about things. Now remember, she's a woman who supposedly is in the deepest level of coma completely just a, a hair above brain dead. And um, he said, imagine you're walking across the room. Imagine you're playing tennis. Think of things. And he found activation in her brain. Even though she had massive brain damage, there were patterns of activation. So hmm. he then took 15 normal volunteers, put them in the machine and asked them the same questions. And her patterns of activation were identical to theirs. Looked the same. So he, he said, well, to a first approximation, it looks like she can think just like they can think. But then he said, you know, maybe the activation we're seeing in the brain isn't because she understands. Maybe it's just the brain's reaction to sound. Maybe, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you understand. Maybe just the noise from the headphones is causing this activation. So he scrambled the words so instead of saying, imagine you're walking across a room, he would say, across, walking, imagine, room, you're. So it made no sense. And the activation went away in her brain and, wow. and in the volunteers. So he showed that the only time she had activation in her brain was when what was asked of her made sense. And her activation was indistinguishable from the activation of completely conscious people. So he concluded that she was able to understand and think about what he was asking her to understand and think about, it, even though she was in the deepest level of coma. So his research has been repeated um, um, by a number of other laboratories uh, for uh, many, many patients in persistent vegetative state. And about 40% of people in persistent vegetative state show high levels of intellectual functioning, even in deep coma. 
Um, and there, there are ways of conversing with people in deep coma where you can, for example, look at the activation state representing yes and the activation state representing no, and you can ask them questions. You know, are you lonely? Do you wish your mother were here? Would you like something to eat? Stuff like that. And they can answer you with these brain states. In addition, some people can do mathematics in coma, or you can ask them, you know, is the square root of 25 six? And they do a no. Is it five? And they do a yes. So there can be very high levels, not in all patients that we've found, but in many patients, again, probably 40% at least, um, of brain, of, of mental function in profoundly damaged brains to the point where actually the medical profession has added a category of patient to this list of ways you can be in a coma, and this is called minimally conscious state. Uh, so patients who have evidence of intellectual functioning in deep coma uh, are called minimally conscious, although frankly, they're not really minimally conscious, they're quite conscious. What this research shows us, besides just the remarkable fact that people who we had previously thought were in deep coma are quite aware of what's going on around them, um, this obviously would have um, relevance, for example, to the Terry Schiavo issue that happened about also about 15 years ago, where this um, woman in California, in Florida, who was in persistent vegetative state from uh, a lack of oxygen to her brain, was starved to death by her husband, uh, supposedly according to what her wishes would be, uh, because it was assumed that she had no no consciousness at all. Um, and this would suggest that there was at least a chance that she was very much aware of what, what was happening to her, which is what her family said, um, you know, what, what her, her parents said. So um, it suggests to us that we should treat people in coma with a lot of respect and a lot of consideration and uh, what I think ought to be the presumption that they are aware and we should treat them that way. Um, and, um, but anyway, but what the, what this research suggests is that there is a disconnect between mental states and brain states. That is that you can have massive brain damage and still have surprisingly high levels of mental function, which at least suggests it's an indirect evidence, but it's, but it is evidence that some aspects of mental functioning, particularly intellectual functioning, um, don't necessarily have a basis in the brain, that maybe that functioning transcends the brain. Let me ask you a question, because we've talked previously about the difference between perceptual thought and abstract thought. In my mind, doing square roots is kind of like memorizing multiplication tables and such. It's just something you go to in, in your memory, and it's, not, and it's not true math. If you gave them a math problem they've never seen before, that would be true math. Is it possible to detect abstract thought in these coma patients, or is everything perceptual, or am I hearing you wrong? Well, it's tricky. Um, first of all, one has to ask, what is the difference between abstract thought and, and perceptual thought? Um, you know, how would you define them? I think the point of cleavage is between uh, abstract thought and concrete thought. The uh, classic Platonic-Aristotelian distinction between abstract thought and concrete thought is that um, abstract thought re refers to concepts that are completely divorced from any concrete object, physical object, whereas concrete thought is about a physical object. Um, a, a very good uh, example would be uh, the difference between thinking about um, 
the hamburger that's sitting in front of you and thinking about nutrition. Uh, you can think about the hamburger, and it's a, you know like it's a quarter pounder, and it's got cheese, and it looks pretty good. And you can think about nutrition. You can think about the fact that it's got a thousand calories, and maybe that kind of would blow your diet. Um, and those are two different ways of thinking. The problem for neuroscience is, of course, that we tend to think of them together. That is, that you know, by and large, when a when a rational human being thinks about food. There'd be some abstract quality to it, like maybe I shouldn't have that banana split right now. Um, on the other hand, when you think about abstract things like nutrition, you're likely at the same time thinking about concrete foods. You know, maybe if I'm thinking about nutrition, I'm thinking about you know those fries I had last night really weren't the best thing for me. So it's difficult to separate out neuroscientifically thought about concrete things and thought about abstract things. And that would be very difficult in the state of a coma for a neuroscientist to uh, right. to differentiate right. between. Although one could say that, for example, um, I think that asking a question about, for example, square roots, yeah, you can. I mean, that, there's a lot of abstract concepts there. Well, unless unless the patient is a nerd, uh, unless they <laughs> well, if they've just memorized the pictures, you know, if they memorize what it looks like on a printed page, yes. Yes. And again, I, I would refer back to the idea of memorizing multiplication tables and addition tables. Right. Right. And I think that uh, a lot of people that do mathematics for a living, like me, have that really at the tip of our fingers, not because of an abstract thought, but because that's what we do for a living. And we've been there a number of times. Yes. But, you, but in, in one thing that, that is helpful in, in, in at least seeing that there are two different kinds of thoughts involved is if you think of your ability, for example, I know that, that you personally have written extensively on Fourier transforms, um, and a person in Russia who speaks no English whatsoever can know everything you know about Fourier transforms, and a person in China can know everything you know about Fourier transforms, even though nothing about your languages overlaps. And you could imagine somebody, although I would imagine the, the written math, mathematics is, is similar, you could imagine somebody who uses different symbols in their mathematics would also know exactly what you know about Fourier transforms, even though they're using a completely different set of symbols. And so the knowledge that you would share in common with somebody who does not share your language or symbols would be the abstract thought. I see. Do you think that there might be a clever experiment of the type that Owen uh, generated that would actually allow differentiation between abstract and perceptual or concrete thought. Is there? Uh, that's, that, does that's anything a, come to mind? Yes, uh, that, that's a that's a tough one. And there are people who've looked at issues like that, and uh, there are all sorts of ways of approaching it. What I think is uh, at least a, a doorway into solving that problem of separating abstract and concrete thought so it can be studied rigorously with, with uh, neuroscience is to use Owen's rather ingenious approach of scrambling um, the words ah. in the sentences so as to remove the semantic content from the sentence. And one could do that, uh, for example, one could record the brainwaves of a person looking at uh, a word on a card and let's say the word um, was the word mercy. And uh, when you see the word mercy, it, it, it evokes thoughts about the abstract concept of mercy. 
you could take exactly the same letters and scramble them so they didn't mean anything and show the person the same card. So that for all intents and purposes, the person is still looking at a card that contains five letters in black ink on a white card. And the difference between the brainwaves of the card that says mercy and the card that shows the scrambled letters would be the brainwaves that correlated with the abstract thought. And if abstract thought is immaterial, then there shouldn't be a difference. Well, you've kind of answered my next question. I think that most of Owen's stuff was done in, what did you say, an NMRI machine? A functional MRI. Functional. F, F, yes. Okay. Functional MRI. Um, do you think that that's always required? I think the functional MRI is going to be pretty expensive, isn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, the, the, the other way one could do it is with electroencephalogram, a brainwave study where you put electrodes on the scalp. Or you could even do it uh, a, during brain surgery with, uh, with awake patients uh, if the surgery is for some other reason and the patient consents to being a part of, of a research project on, on, on mind states. Rather comatose, in other words? Uh, no, no, but you could, you could look at it. You could look at this question of the neurological correlates of abstract thought uh, in patients who were, who were just awake. Uh, you know, the looking at people who are comatose is one way of getting at the issue, but you could also look at it in people who are awake. The, the, the implication of this finding, I think, in comatose patients is that there is a disconnect between a mind state and a brain state that suggests that the mind state is not completely explainable by the brain state. But you could also look at that in awake patients. Okay. Do we conclude then that humanitarian treatment of those in a deep coma should be to keep them alive, keep them nourished, and keep them going, even though they have very little capability of or possibility of being recovered? Yes, yes. It supports the, the, the basic notion that all human beings, regardless of their, uh, of their physical condition, warrant respect, warrant compassion and um, have a basic right to certain kind of fundamental things like, um, like food and like water, uh, like hygiene, like um, shelter, like clothing. You know, just the basic ways you would treat any human being. Um, I don't think that people in comas should be considered uh, less than human. So I wouldn't treat a person in a coma with any less respect than I would treat somebody who was awake and sitting in a chair in front of me. Uh, I, I think, for example, I think the what was done to Terry Schiavo was a was a brutal, cruel thing. Um, I should point out that when she was deprived of food and water, and it took her more than a week to die, uh, when she was deprived of food and water, they gave her morphine, which you, you would think that if if you really thought that she had no awareness, then you, why would you give her morphine? Uh, so I think even the people who were starving her to death on one level were concerned that she was aware, which is a pretty horrible thing. That's an interesting observation, that their yeah. conclusion was actually self-contradictory in their treatment. She, she was um, on a morphine drip during this. They gave her continuous morphine. Yeah, it seems to me the treatment of people in deep comas parallels something like the care of severe, severely handicapped children or such. So I was, I was at a medical conference um, during the time that she was being deprived of food. And uh, there was a discussion during the medical conference about the ethics 
of depriving her of food. And um, most people at the conference felt that it was appropriate to deprive her of food. And I argued they did. against it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was widely, widely accepted. Or at least most people who spoke up. It turns out uh, afterwards I found that a number of people didn't think it was appropriate, but they didn't really want to speak up. Um, but I pointed out during the conference that it was ironic that <clears throat> we were um, having this discussion while a uh, profoundly handicapped woman was being starved to death, and the conference was catered. So we were sitting there eating uh, sandwiches, talking about starving a brain-damaged woman to death, and saying it was okay to do that. And um, everybody, there were, there were a couple hundred people there, everybody put down their sandwich. Nobody else ate the rest of the session, because we kind of realized what we were doing. The other thing, the, the point that was made, and this really goes into medical ethics, but I think it's a very interesting question, is one of the rationales that was used for depriving her of food was that uh, her handicap left her unable to get food herself, and that that in some sense changed her status. That is, if she had lost that kind of autonomy, um, that, well, you know, she she was different, and that it was acceptable since she couldn't obtain it herself, the food herself, that to kind of to let her pass away without feeding her. And um, so I asked the people at the conference. I said, "Is there anybody here that if you didn't have supermarkets and you didn't have caterers and you didn't have people to make your food for you, could obtain your own food? Could you grow your mm -hmm. own food? Nobody could. We all depend on other people to feed us." Uh, people like Terry Schiavo depend on other people to feed them in a very, very direct way. Uh, the rest of us depend no less on other people to feed us, only we go to the supermarket and we think we're feeding ourselves, but we're not. So I, I, uh, I, I stressed that she was no more dependent on other people to feed her than we are. And it was just as cruel to deprive her of food as it would be to deprive any of us of food. Yeah, it seems to me the philosophy of the sacrificing of coma patients is a slippery slope to Nazi Germany's condemnation of useless eaters. Precisely. To the point where, where people are, are condemned because they're not productive to society. Well, thank you, Michael. Our guest today has been Dr. Michael Ignor. He's a professor of neurosurgery and pediatrics at State University of New York. And for Mind Matters, until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.